Good morning again, everybody. Thank you, worship team, Dylan and crew, for, for leading us in song this morning. And, ah, oh, blessing it is to be together and worship the Lord together. If you're new with us, thank you for, for being here. If you're here and your, your kids are doing Vacation Bible Sundays and this is your first time, I, I uh, thank you for coming out and I uh, hope you have a good experience here at our church and that you're welcomed well. And, and um, you know, I was thinking, I was talking to some people this morning, just, you know, summertime, the craziness of summer, it sometimes draws us in a lot of different ways to different things and things we want to do and memories of the past and, and uh, things that we feel like we need to do. And, and the truth is that all of it, you know, all of it is empty without Jesus. It just is. In the big picture, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> um, well, what we should be so thankful for is that God loves us and that he's with us, whatever we're doing. And... Uh, I want to be talking about that this morning and just thankful that we have this time together to focus our hearts and thoughts on, on Jesus now and on his word. Um, if we were to travel back to the year 753 BC, uh, we would see that by all human appearances, there was a prosperous nation in the Middle East called Israel. And things were going really well for Israel at that time. Israel was a rich nation. Israel was a powerful nation. But unfortunately, Israel was also a morally and spiritually corrupt nation. Uh, the people of Israel um, worshiped the Lord with their lips. He says this, the Lord says this, you worship me with your lips, but in your hearts you're far away from me. And so what God did is he appointed some, some, some men to prophesy against Israel. And he, he, he came to a shepherd, a humble shepherd named Amos. And he said, Amos, I'm going to use you to prophesy against my people. And God the Holy Spirit filled Amos and he spoke these words to Israel. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So what God is saying here, <laughs> should humble all of us, uh, It definitely pushes against the 21st century mindset that however you want to worship God is good. Whatever is good for you is good, right? That's not what God says. God says that a church can sing songs of worship to him. A church can bring large offerings to him. A church can have wonderful times of fellowship. A church can do all these things. And at the same time, God can despise that church. And likewise, an individual person can attend church regularly and sing songs of worship to God and give offerings to God and at the same time be despised by God. That's powerful. Um, 
Now, from an earthly standpoint, the Israelites back in 753 B.C., of all people, they had everything they needed to worship God rightly in a way that he would not despise. God God had given the Israelites instructions to build this temple uh, where they could meet with God and worship him in. And God had given the Israelites his law, which, which describes how sinful people can know God and worship him. So even though the Israelites had the temple even though they had God's law, why did God despise their worship at that time? This is why. Because neither worshiping God in a certain building nor knowing what God's law says can make someone love the Lord. It, neither, neither worshiping in a certain building or knowing what the, God's law says can make a person trust the Lord with all their heart. And the Israelites at this point, they fooled themselves into thinking that they could get away with being greedy and sexually immoral and foolish and worshiping all these other gods during the week just as long as they made it to the temple on Sabbath to worship God. That's what God is preaching against here. Now, fast forward 800 years then, okay, to uh, the middle of the first century AD now, and the Jews still took great pride in the, the temple, and they still took great pride in being keepers of God's law because God had sovereignly given them the law to be the light for all nations. But their worship was still displeasing to God because even though their lips sung his praises, many of their hearts were far from him. And as we read about the spiritual struggles and the rebellion of, of the Jews in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we should never think that, that we could have worshiped God better than the Jews. I've heard, I mean, I've heard people say, well, when I was in, if I were in the garden, I wouldn't have eaten that apple. <laughs> really, okay. You have a very high view of yourself. That's sweet. Um, this is the reality. All of us, Jews and Gentiles, we're all part of the same human race. It doesn't matter what your, your race or your, your culture, your ethnicity, you're human. And as humans, we're, we're flawed and, and we have, um, we're inherently born sinful. And because our sin has warped every part of our personhood, this is reality. All of us are prone to do this. All of us are prone to worship God with our lips, but to have our hearts be far away from him. Last week, we we began to read about this Christian man, Stephen, who hadn't been a Jew, um, and then Jesus turned his life upside down, and he trusted in Jesus, and he began to be um, a Christian. And he was preaching in Jerusalem to the Jews about their temple and about God's law, and it says that he was filled with God. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the more he preached the angrier that crowd got in Jerusalem. And eventually, uh, the people had had enough of his preaching. They dragged him to the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high court, the high supreme court. They dragged him there to be tried in court for blasphemy against God's temple and against God's law. Now, if you have your Bible with you, this is what I want you to turn with me to Acts 6, 8. If you haven't already... And I want to read through last week's passage so we can remember where we are, we are here. And then I'm going to make a few comments before we read today's passage. 
Acts 6, 8. So this is, we're in the first century now, right? This is uh, when this passage is taking place. This takes place after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we read his word. Dear Lord, um, you are the one true God of the universe. You are holy and good and loving and just. You're the three-in-one God. You're the Father and the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And we just thank you for showing yourself to us in your word. And as we read it, we we confess we need your help. Uh, We need your help now not just to pay attention, not just to focus, but especially to be changed by your word. We don't want to be like that passage in James where we open up the Bible and it's like this mirror and we look at ourselves and then our hair's all messed up and then we walk away like we never saw anything that needed to be changed and, and, and we're unchanged. We need, Holy Spirit, to look in the mirror of your word and for you to change us. And we need to be more holy like you, Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, we can't do this on our own. We ask that you would teach us and change us and transform our desires and our thoughts and our words and our actions so that um, we worship you the way you desire to be worshiped and the way that you deserve to be worshiped. And we thank you, God, that uh, your acceptance of that worship is not based on our hard work, but on your hard work for us. Um, We are utterly helpless to do life and to face eternity without you. And we confess our sins to you. And we thank you for dealing with our sin and guilt and shame on the cross. And our hope is in you alone. So Jesus, we ask that you would work now. Please protect us from evil. And we pray this for the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So we're going to start with Acts 6, 8 to 15. Which will give us the context of... And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So here Stephen is. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's standing before the high Jewish court in Jerusalem, about 70 men. And the Jews are accusing him of speaking blasphemous words against their temple and against God's law given by Moses. Remember, this is the same Sanhedrin that already condemned Jesus to death and that warned Peter and the disciples to stop talking about Jesus, and they didn't. So Stephen has the the deck stacked against him. And and now what he's going to do is he's going to give a long defense in response to these these accusations against him. 
And he's going to defend himself by telling the story of the Jewish people themselves. And in doing this, he wants to show the Sanhedrin a couple of facts. First of all, Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to see that God's relationship with his people has never been confined to their temple. God's relationship with his people has never been confined to a building. And second, Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to see that even though the Jews say that they love God's law, the reality is that they have been habitual lawbreakers and rebels. Um, and they have turned against God and against the prophets and servants that he sent to them. And so as we read def- uh, Stephen's defense here, that's what I want you to look for, okay? The ways that Stephen shows that God meets with his people outside of the temple and the fact that the Jews have habitually broken God's law just like the rest of us. Let's start with Acts 7, 1 to 8. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now, let me tell you this. If you're newer to the Bible and some of this is just going over your head, that's okay. You're in the right boat, okay? Just know that we're going to be covering, this is a long, lot of Jewish history. We don't expect You just soak all this in first time, okay? Um, That's okay. Just kind of focus on those things I'm trying to get you to focus on. Remember that, um, or more importantly, what God wants you to focus on. Remember that, so the temple, what is a temple? A temple is a meeting place between God and people. That's what it is. But God appeared to Abraham before there ever was a temple. That's what Stephen's saying. Before there ever was a tabernacle or a tent of meeting. God does not need a temple, to meet with his people. And, and God's people don't need a temple in order to worship God. Like we see here in verse 7, long before a temple was ever built, God made this covenant with Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. And in the line of Abraham's offspring, who eventually came? Jesus Christ. The visual sign here that accompanied this this covenant given to Abraham was circumcision, which set apart Abraham's offspring from all the other nations. Okay, let's keep reading here in verses nine to 15. And the patriarchs, so we're moving on. So what he's doing here is he's transitioning to the next story in God's story, okay? And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Okay, so verse 9 here, this is what's happening. Stephen says that the patriarchs who represent all of the future Jewish nation, right, the 12 patriarchs, um, well, the 11 here, they turned against their brother Joseph and they sold him into slavery in Egypt. So listen, the reason why the rest of the Jews down the line would be enslaved to the Egyptians is because their own patriarchs turned against God's servant, Joseph. So before the Jews ever multiplied in Egypt, their own patriarchs had rebelled against God. They'd rebelled against God's servant, Joseph. And at the end of verse 9 here, it says that God was with Joseph. When? When he was sold into slavery in Egypt. When that happened to Joseph, God was with him. And again, this is before the temple was built. And so Stephen is showing the Sanhedrin that God has a history of meeting with his people and delivering them from evil, even without a temple and even outside the, the holy land of Israel itself. Okay, let's read verses 17 to 43 now. Next, next part of the story. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Well, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. 
and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send, oh, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one, who's he referring to? Jesus there, right? This is the one who was the, in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan and the, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. All right. So as, as we've already seen now with Abraham and Joseph, God had a pattern of coming down in heavenly glory to meet with his people even before a temple had been built. And in verses 30 to 33, we read that the angel of the Lord and the voice of the Lord appeared to Moses in the wilderness and told Moses that even there out there in the wilderness, Moses should take off his sandals because he was standing in the presence of God. And from then on out, whether Moses was in the wilderness or whether he was in Egypt, he, he, uh, God continued to meet with Moses. So th- the other theme here that we see continue in, in this part of the defense is the unrighteousness, the lawlessness, the rebellion of God's people. And we get a glimpse of it in verse 27 when after saving the life of this Jewish man, Moses is confronted by a couple of men who say to him, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? What's a, well, God did, <laughs> right? That, that's, that's who Moses would be, God's prophet. That's who he was. And then in verses 38 to 40, we read that even though God gave the living oracles of his law to Moses at Mount Sinai, the Israelites refused to obey Moses. They refused to obey him. So God and Moses in the Old Testament um, often described the Israelites as a stiff-necked people. Okay? Stiff-necked means stubborn and difficult to lead. Stubborn and difficult to lead. It, it, it's a, it was a farming term that a farmer would call one of his oxen stiff-necked if that ox would, would refuse to turn its head in the right direction, right? No matter how much that farmer tried to prod that ox in the right direction, that ox would not turn its head and it would stubbornly go in the wrong direction. It was stiff-necked. And, and when the stiff-necked Jews of the Old Testament refused to obey Moses, they were actually refusing to obey God himself. Because Moses was the leader that God appointed to oversee them. 
But, but the Israelites showed they, they didn't want Moses, they didn't want God, they didn't want God's law, and so they built false gods to worship instead. And verse 42 says that, that as a result of their actions, God turned away from them and he gave them over to worship false gods. He says, if you want to worship demons, worship demons. And so Stephen here is, uses Moses' life to show the Sanhedrin, right? He's, in, he's on trial. That uh, Two things, both that God doesn't need to, a temple to meet with his people because he met with Moses out in the wilderness and in Egypt. And he's also showing the Sanhedrin that the, the people who the Sanhedrin represents, the Jews, they have a long history of rebelling against God's law, right? Because remember what's going on. What's Stephen being accused of? being a rebel against God's law. Okay, now let's read verses 44 to 50. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with, with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Okay, so, so Stephen shows here that even though the tent of witness and the tabernacle and the temple were good things, and even though it was right for the Jews to obey the Lord by building them, the temple itself could not make them right with God. And more than that, the, the most high God we read here in God's word, some, uh, in this quote, says, I do not dwell in houses made by hands. So, so yes, God meets with people at times in buildings. He meets with his people. But God is not, we need to, he's not like the other gods. He is not like a genie in a bottle who we just carry around and unleash whenever we want to. If anybody is in a box, it's us. We are in the box of the earth that God made, okay? He is sovereign over us. And, and so... Um, I like this quote uh, by John Stott. Uh, he, he's pushing against this idea that God is a confined God to the temple. And he says this, the God of Israel is a pilgrim God who is not restricted to any one place. He has pledged himself by a solemn covenant to be their God. Therefore, according to his covenant promises, wherever his people are, there he is also. And you see that from the Old Testament covenant with Abraham to the New Testament covenant we have in Jesus Christ. God's people are a pilgrim people. In many ways, we're, we're always on the move, always going where God tells us, always, what are we supposed to do? Go to the nations and make disciples of all nations. And so, it makes sense, and even here on earth, we are pilgrims, right? We're pilgrims on earth. And, and so it, uh, it makes sense that since God has covenanted himself with his pilgrim people, then wherever they pilgrim, 
he pilgrims with them. Praise God for that. And uh, as, as Stephen used scripture here to point out these two themes of God's presence and man's lawlessness, <clears throat> you know, the, we don't know for sure how, how the Sanhedrin reacted at first. It's probably not unlikely that at first as he was reviewing the history of the Jewish people, they weren't totally outraged. Um, but as long as he pointed backwards, he was okay. But all of a sudden, if you follow the trajectory of where Stephen's going here, you see that things are about to come to a head. Because now instead of pointing backward in time, Stephen's going to point forward to the present members of the Sanhedrin. And he's going to accuse them of wrongly idolizing the temple and of wrongly interpreting and abusing God's law, even though that's the one he's on, that's, those are the things he's on trial for in court. Let's read how Stephen does that here in verse 51. He says this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. That is Holy Spirit-filled courage and boldness. And so now, this is what he's doing. Stephen is grouping all the members of the Sanhedrin with the rebellious Hebrews of the past. And he says they are just like the rebellious fathers. Stephen says, you are stiff-necked and stubborn. You are leading people in the wrong direction. You are uncircumcised in heart and ears. Because even though you're circumcised outwardly, your hearts are uncircumcised and still connected to sin and lawlessness. Stephen says, you always resist the Holy Spirit of God. You've disobeyed God. You persecuted and killed the prophets that he sent to you. And worst of all, you killed the righteous one. You killed the one that God sent to you. Jesus Christ, you betrayed him. You murdered Jesus, the Christ. And you boasted in the fact that you're the ones who received the law, but you murdered the author of the law. Whew. And as he spoke these words to the Sanhedrin, um, this, uh, this was not a, uh, it, this was spirit-led. This was not a careless spewing out of words onto these people. Stephen was filled with the Spirit and his words were an indictment from God himself onto the members of the Sanhedrin. And he, Stephen's telling the Sanhedrin that the, that the prophet Amos' words that we read at the beginning of this message are still true of them. Even though they meticulously kept God's feasts, God despised the way that they feasted because they feasted as unbelievers. And the songs of the Jews did not please God's ears because all he could hear were the cries of the Jewish crowd to crucify his son Jesus. And the offerings of the Jews God hated because the Jews hated what God offered to them, his only son. 
It, it didn't matter if, if the Jews loved the temple and had a long history of meeting God in the temple. If they weren't worshiping God rightly, if they weren't trusting, uh, if, they, if they were trusting in themselves instead of trusting God, if their hearts were not circumcised, their hearts, then worshiping in the temple was pointless. And if they came to God thinking that they were righteous law keepers, they were fooling themselves. They, they were sinners just like everybody else. And they had not only turned against God uh, and his servants, but especially they had turned against and killed his only beloved son, Jesus. So what makes you and me today any different from the Israelites and the members of the Sanhedrin? How do we know that God accepts our songs and our offerings and our worship and our fellowship? Aren't we sinners too? Yes. Haven't we turned away from God at some point in our lives? Don't we battle sin every day? Yes. Haven't, haven't we been stiff-necked at times and resistant to God's lead? Yes. And, and aren't we just as guilty as killing, uh, of them as killing Jesus? We can't just put this on the Jews and the Romans. Aren't we guilty? I mean, weren't, we weren't alive when it happened, but Jesus didn't go to the cross just to pay for the sins of that one generation who was alive when he was alive. Jesus went to the cross to suffer for the sins of all generations of humanity, past, present, and future. So how can we be confident that God accepts us and that he accepts the worship that we bring to him when we gather as a church family? Listen closely. We will only be acceptable to God and our worship will only be acceptable to God when we are trusting in Jesus Christ alone to make us acceptable to God. We're only acceptable to God. Our worship is only acceptable to God when we're trusting in Jesus Christ alone to make our worship acceptable to God. We must believe that Jesus fulfilled the law for us because none of us could ever meet the requirements of that law. It is too holy, it is too perfect for us. We must believe that Jesus is the righteous one who did it for us. So that means we don't, we don't, we, we, I'm not saying, I'm not assuming this about everybody in here. Because one of the biggest hurdles to get over in order to trust Jesus is to admit that you need him because you're a sinner. You're a lawbreaker. I'm talking about Christians here. We don't take pride in how well we keep the law or how well we worship God or how impressive all the things are that we do for God. All of our works are pointless if we've broken the law at even one point. And we all have. God says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus never sinned. Jesus was and is and forever will be the glory of God. God's law is perfect. It stands forever. And thankfully, God came to earth and fulfilled the law for us because he loves us and because we need his righteousness in order to be at peace with him. We need to be covered by his righteousness. That's what Jesus accomplished for us and offers to us if we trust in him. 
Jesus is our law fulfiller. And besides being our law fulfiller, Jesus is our true temple. Okay? Jesus is the only temple we need. Jesus is where we meet with God. Jesus is the perfect lamb of God who was, uh, whose blood was shane, uh, shed on the cross to suffer for our sins and to purify us from all righteousness. He was the final sacrifice for us. Jesus' flesh was the temple veil that was torn in two. So we might no longer be separated from God, but so that we can now confidently approach the throne of God in his grace and glory. Jesus is our true high priest who offered himself as our sacrifice. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. Jesus is the high priest who has taken us and hidden us in his blood forever, and he intercedes for us in heaven. Jesus is our true temple where we meet with God. Anywhere Jesus is, is where we can meet with God and worship him as his people. And Jesus told us, his followers, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So wherever we go, Jesus goes with us. He's our pilgrim pilgrim God, and we can worship him wherever we are. And God accepts us, and he accepts our worship if we trust that Jesus makes us acceptable to God and that we can't make ourselves acceptable to God. We, we trust that God is pleased with our songs. We trust that God is pleased with our offerings and our fellowship, not because we have done these things perfectly or without sin, but because we trust that the righteousness of Jesus with which we are covered through faith worships God perfectly for us. God makes us born again when we trust in Jesus. He makes us new creations with circumcised hearts. Hearts that no longer want to cling to sin and and sinful habits, but hearts that are being transformed into the image of Christ. Hearts that want to be freed from sin more and more because we know that sin is what Jesus cuts us off from eternally when he died on the cross for us. You hear that? Sin is what Jesus cuts us off from eternally when we trust that he died and rose again for us. That's what he accomplished on the cross. And as God's born again people, because he's made us born again, he says, I will put a heart in you. I will take out your, 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 your heart of stone. I will put in you a heart of flesh that desires me. Because God's done that for his people, we now want to worship God. We, not only when we're gathered together here, not only when we're in a church building together, wherever that may be, but when we're living our lives outside these church walls and when we're working our jobs and when we're at soccer practice and when we're talking to people wherever we may be. God's changed our hearts. He's fulfilled the law for us and he's our temple. All right, let me conclude by giving us three more brief applications. First, Today's passage reminds us that God is with us wherever we go. And that means that he knows the most intimate secrets of our lives, whether we're Christians or whether we're not Christians. It is foolish for any of us to think that we can somehow constrain God to this place. That we can limit our relationship with God to Sunday mornings. That's where I deal with God on Sunday mornings. Um, 
or that somehow God doesn't see, to convince ourselves somehow that God does not see everything we do Monday to Saturday. And, and knowing that there are no secret locked rooms in our lives which, which God can't access, let's work to acknowledge God's presence wherever we are, Christians, because it does take a conscious um, focusing of your thoughts on that reality, that God is with me wherever I am. Uh, he is my ultimate accountability partner. Um, he's with me whatever I'm doing. And I want to worship him in all of my moments, where I, wherever I'm at, whoever I'm with, whether I'm alone or whether I'm with other people. And in order for that to happen, this, this sort of vulnerability on our end to happen, we need God's help. And it means that secret sins may have to come to the surface and be dealt with in your life. And I encourage you to confess secret sins that maybe you've convinced yourself you've hidden God from or sins that you know are hindering your relationship with him. I encourage you to confess those to God and ask him to help you deal with those and to turn with, from those in a way that's honoring to him. Second, today's passage reminds us that, <clears throat> that God meant, he wants a relationship with us. He wants a friendship with us. That's so awesome. Who are we? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense that he didn't just obliterate us, right? But he loves us, not because we are great, but because he is great, because he has divinely made this plan where we're made in his image and we're valuable to him and, and we live for his glory. I mean, it, it's, it is amazing that the living God doesn't want to just be this God out there, but he wants to be in our lives. He cares about us. He, he, but listen to this. He wants a relationship he doesn't want us to do religious things to avoid having a relationship with him. Because if you're not careful, going to church can become a religious thing. Or reading your Bible can be a religious thing. Or some of you have been parts of churches where you do a lot of religious things. Right? He doesn't want us to come to church and confess our sins so that we can then go live a life that doesn't acknowledge him seven days a week. He doesn't, he doesn't want you and me to keep praying to foreign gods or trusting in, 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 in anything other than him for help. He doesn't want us trusting in our bank account to get through. He wants us to trust in him alone. It's a message from the Old Testament to the New. God shows from the first page of the Bible to the last that his desire, what he wants, is to love and redeem a people for himself who he will eternally bless and who will live to bring him the glory he deserves. Thank God we don't need religious works or priests or buildings to come to in order to come to God. You only need Jesus, he's the temple. Talk to Jesus, trust in Jesus, abide in Jesus, abide in his word, abide in his love. And third, because Jesus is our temple, we can worship God wherever we are, okay? Now listen to this, because I've heard some people, I've gone with some people, it's like, I don't need to go to church because this is my temple, right? Pointing to the forest around them, pointing to the Puget Sound. This is where I worship God. Okay, good, I kind of see what you're saying. Like, it's beautiful, God made it. Um, yes, you can worship God wherever you are. <clears throat> but if you read the Bible, it says that we are a people, God didn't save an individual. He saved a people. And people need each other and come together. God tells us, he says, continue to meet together 
and all the more, meet together all the more as the day of Jesus' return gets closer. So, so yeah, you can worship, of course you can worship the Lord when you're alone and, and when you're vacationing and when you're camping with your family, but that doesn't replace worshiping with God's people. We are Christ's body. He tells us to do life together and to worship him together because that is for our good and it is for his glory. So next week, uh, we're going to see that the members of the Sanhedrin really were just like their forefathers because they didn't take well to Stephen's words. They, they were infuriated. But what we'll see is that Stephen kept his eyes on Jesus and God would then use Stephen's suffering and death to change the course of history. Hope you come back for that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time uh, we've had together. God, this passage was packed with a lot of information and, and, and it might take some time for us just to meditate on all of this and, and I hope we will do that now and this week. And um, <clears throat> We thank you, God, um, for intervening in history and intervening in our lives and for seeing the reality that we are lawbreakers and that the law points us to our need for you. But more than that even, Jesus, uh, that you came and fulfilled that law for us perfectly and then you gave us the credit of doing that as though we did it ourselves when we trusted in you, Jesus. And we thank you, God, that even though you've met with your people in a building in certain times of history, you're not confined to a temple and you are the true temple. And that wherever we are as your people, that's where you are too. You're our pilgrim, God, as we pilgrim uh, through this life and around this world to spread your glory and to make disciples of all nations. Help us, God, this week uh, with whatever we're going through, whatever we're wrestling with, um, help us to acknowledge you. Help us to acknowledge that you're with us. Help us to, um, to take time to focus on you, to open your word, to pray. That's hard to do. We need your help to do that. And help us just to man, do what you told us to do. You, you welcome us. You invite us to abide in your love and to abide in your word, and to abide in you and your presence. Help us to do that today, God, um, for our blessing, because the things of this world, although they make big promises, they can't satisfy us. They just can't. And this life just doesn't matter if it's not lived with you and for your glory. Help us to believe that and to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.